0: Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Ashka, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, "If If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about the words and names on your own law... Settle the matter yourselves. I will not be the judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. They all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in the front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever.
1: Uh, the world that we're living in today is more and more urbanised every year. More and more people are choosing to live in cities. Uh, back in 1890, there were only four cities in the world that had a population over one million people. In 1980, less than 100 years later, there were 225 cities at least that had a population of more than a million people. Back in 1950, there were only two cities with a population of more than 10 million people, London and New York. Today, there are well over 30 cities in our world that have a population of more than 10 million people. Uh, The largest city in the world today, depending on how you measure things, is either Tokyo with a population of 37 million people or Guangzhou in China with a population of 44 million people. The number of cities in our world today is growing rapidly and the size of our cities is growing rapidly as well. Now, I mention all of that because as we look through this account of Paul's travelling throughout uh, Turkey and Greece, he has a clear strategy in mind. He does things in in a very purposeful way. Paul's plan is to go to the biggest and the most influential cities in the Roman world at that time, and to preach the gospel there. Uh, going to a big city wasn't just a matter of having a big population that you could speak to. It was further, it went further than that. There were other factors. This morning we're looking at Paul visiting the city of Corinth, and, and along with Athens, they are by far the two largest cities that he has preached the gospel in so far. Corinth, back in Paul's day, was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. Had a population, they estimate, of close to one million people. And not only is it a large city, but it is an influential city. Trade from Corinth goes right out to the known world at that time. Preaching the gospel there would be part of Paul's strategy. Because the the gospel could then easily go out to other ports all around the world. Just the way that cargo would leave Corinth and head off to the rest of the world, Paul wanted to see the gospel leave Corinth and go off to the rest of the world. Now last week we finished uh, by looking at Paul's speech when he stood up in the Areopagus at the end of chapter 17. He left Athens and travelled to Corinth, only a short distance of around about 40 kilometres um, from, from Athens across to Corinth, so a short trip this time, but uh, he still left Timothy and Silas in Berea and, they, and he's still waiting for them to catch up with him. I went on quite a number of surfing holidays when I was younger and they often looked like this. We wouldn't pay for camping grounds or anything. We'd find somewhere in the bush that we could stay. We'd cook our own food. But there was a very simple principle involved in all of these camping holidays to Byron Bay, Scott's Head, Crescent Head, South West Rocks, all of these places up and down the North Coast. The principle was this. When the money ran out, you had to go home. Now, I know that's a fairly simple principle, but it was a very important one for us to learn because we'd often leave home with what we thought was loads of money that would last us for ages, but gradually it would dwindle down and you'd be 600 kilometres up the coast and you'd have to calculate how much petrol you were going to need, what it was going to cost you to get home so that you could actually make it home with the vehicle. Now, the first time that I read through the Book of Acts... I wondered what they did for money. Because they're travelling like ridiculous distances, way further than I was travelling on my surfing holidays. Paul, Paul's embarking on a journey of about 4,000 kilometres in this second missionary tour. He's going to be away from home for three years. So how do you fund that? Where does the money come from to do that kind of thing? Well, we see a bit of an answer at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 18. When Paul arrives in Corinth, what does he do? He finds work as a tent maker. That was his old craft. That was what he used to do. So he arrives in Corinth and he finds these two people, Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife, who were also tent makers. And not only are they tent makers, but they are also Christians. They share tent making skills with Paul, but they also share this desire to see the gospel go out to the rest of the world. We use that expression tent-making today uh, in Christian organisations and churches. We'll we'll talk about people who are planting churches as being a tent-making ministry. And what we mean by that is they're supporting themselves in order to do the work of preaching the gospel. Uh, They're they're paying their own way. They've got another job that's supporting them. A a friend of mine did this, went to a church that was unable to afford to pay him. So he was working in Bunnings for three days a week while he built things up in the church, continuing to preach the gospel and tent making. They don't make tents at Bunnings. They don't even sell tents at Bunnings, I don't think. But, But tent making is what we call it because that's what Paul did. So here he is in Corinth and he's working during the week, making tents with Priscilla and Aquila. Then on the weekends, and especially on the Sabbath, he's heading to the synagogue to tell people there that the Messiah has come. The one that was promised in the pages of the Old Testament is now here and has brought salvation, has brought in the kingdom that God had promised. So that's the first part of the answer to the question of where does the money come from. But there's another part. Have a look at chapter 18 and verse number 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. There were those who supported Paul in what he was doing. It seems that when Timothy and Silas arrived, they found jobs. They were the ones who found work. And they wanted to free up Paul to be able to preach full time, to not just do it on the weekends or on the Sabbath, but to do it Monday to Friday as well. They knew how important it was for the gospel to be preached. They knew that there were people there who wanted to hear about Jesus. So what they wanted to do was free Paul up to be able to do that work. We also know that there were other churches that supported Paul as well. Right from the very beginning, the Philippian church wanted to financially and materially support Paul in the work that he was doing. It's amazing when you read through the rest of the New Testament letters, how many times these names come up. Timothy, Silas, Aquila, Priscilla and and plenty of others. They're Paul's co-workers They worked with him, they supported him financially and materially, and they supported him with their preaching of the gospel as well. See, gospel work is teamwork. While Paul may in some ways be the main character in this second half of the book of Acts, he couldn't have done this by himself. He couldn't have done this alone. He wouldn't have been anywhere near as effective if he was doing it by himself. All of these other people were the ones who made the preaching of the gospel happen. Now, as I said, when Timothy and Silas arrived from Corinth, uh, Paul stopped the tent-making and devoted himself full-time to preaching. And it didn't take too long for the Jewish leadership to again be offended by what Paul is saying. They reject him and the message that he's preaching. They even get a little bit abusive with him. And, And when the Jewish leadership finally force him out of the synagogue, uh, look at what Paul says, chapter 18, verse number six. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel was told that he was supposed to be a watchman for the city. That was his job as a prophet, not to literally be a watchman, but to spiritually be a watchman, to warn these people, uh, to turn back to God, to be faithful in their relationship with him. And if the watchman fails to do his job, then the blood of those people will be on his hands. But if he does his job, well their blood will be on their own head because they refuse to listen. Can you imagine how angry the Jewish leadership must have been when Paul's quoting Ezekiel to them like that? Saying, your blood's on your head. If you're refusing to accept that Jesus is the Messiah, then your blood is on your head. But he's right. See, what Paul's preaching is not some take-it-or-leave-it message, and that's why he quotes that verse from Ezekiel. This is serious stuff. And the consequences of rejecting Jesus are really serious. And it's like he said right at the end of his speech in the Areopagus, God has set the day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed appointed, and he has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. God has set the day when Jesus will come to judge this world, and the basis for the judgment will be whether or not you accept or reject Jesus. What Paul is preaching is serious stuff, and the Jews, more than anyone, should have been ready to listen to it. But they reject the message and they reject the messenger. But there are some who do respond to what Paul says. The day that Paul was thrown out of the synagogue, we're told that he actually just went next door. There was a guy by the name of Justice who said, hey, you can use my house and you can continue preaching here. Right beside the synagogue. That must have made the leadership of the synagogue so thrilled to hear that Paul has now moved in next door and put a sign up. But have a look at what it says in verse 8. Crispus... The synagogue ruler and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians heard him. Uh, who heard him believed and were baptised. So, so the, the synagogue ruler has walked out the door of the synagogue, walked down to the next house to Justice's home where Paul is preaching and said, we're with you now the head of the synagogue says that he is now a part of this newly formed church. That must have been a tough choice for that guy. That wouldn't have been an easy thing to do. I mean, being the synagogue ruler would have given him a place of position and and significance in the community in that day. He would have had the respect of all the Jews who were living in Corinth. But Crispus is willing to turn his back on all of that because he knows that this is the truth. This is worth putting your life into chaos to believe in Jesus. Would have no doubt upset the synagogue rulers, they now have to find another, a uh, synagogue leaders, they now have to find another ruler, someone to take over that responsibility. They're already angry with Paul And for Crispus to leave would have made them even more determined to get him. Well, there's a new governor in town, Gallio. So some of the men from the synagogue decide they're going to take Paul down before the governor on this trumped-up charge of unlawful religion. Uh, Judaism was an approved religion in the Roman Empire at that time, but they wanted to say that Christianity wasn't. And for Paul to preach about Jesus, well, that's just not on. But before Paul can even get up to speak, Gallio says this. Have a look at it, verse fourteen of chapter eighteen. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, "If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions of words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not judge. I will not be a judge of such things." And the Jews hear that Gallio doesn't want to have anything to do with this. They are now furious. And I don't know whether you noticed it in the reading, but in in a most bizarre twist, they now beat up the new ruler of the synagogue. The guy's been in the job for five minutes since Crispus left, and now they're going to beat him up because Gallio wouldn't listen to them. I don't quite understand the logic of it. But it does show you the rage that they must feel about what it is that Paul's doing. It's interesting to note that when you read through Paul's letters to the Corinthians sometime later, he actually mentions a man by the name of Sosthenes there. Um, Not sure whether or not it's the same person, but I think it's pretty likely that it would be the same one who was now being beaten up by the synagogue rulers. Well, Altogether, Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth, preaching about Jesus and strengthening the new Christians there. The time finally came for him to leave. Uh, he heads back to his home base in Antioch via the city of Ephesus uh, and during his brief stay in Antioch, they ple- in Ephesus, they plead with him to stay there and he promises that he will come back and we'll see Paul return to Ephesus in his next missionary tour. But the thing that really stands out to me when you look at this particular chapter of, one, of um, Acts is that Paul's not alone in preaching the gospel. Gospel work is teamwork. We often imagine Paul out there as kind of a one-man operation, standing in the synagogues or standing on street corners and preaching the good news about Jesus. But when you read through chapters like this, you realise just how many other people there are who are involved with this, who are working with Paul, toward that same end. I mean, there's Aquila and Priscilla who, first of all, they give him work and accommodation in exchange for him working with them as tent makers. But they also travelled with him to Ephesus and we see from Aquila and Priscilla that they're able to explain the gospel to people as well. They're able to help people understand the truth about Jesus. then there's that man called Justice who we don't know much more about, but he's willing to offer a place for Paul to be able to meet with the new church. There's Timothy and Silas who support Paul in the preaching of the gospel financially. There's the church in Philippi who support him. Each of those people helped in different ways. Each of those people had gifts and abilities that they could use towards that same end. Some are able to teach and speak. Some are doing things behind the scenes. But they're all working towards the same end. They're all working to see the gospel preach to see more people come to know and trust Jesus. And what we see in these chapters is really just a glimpse of what ought to be operating in churches today. Gospel work is teamwork. Here's your team right here. That's the team that you're a part of. That's the team that that you work with. Jesus calls us, as his disciples, to be on about his business, gospel business. We're each going to have a different role to play, a different part, but we will each have a role. We don't all do the same thing, but we all work towards the same goal. Paul was the one preaching in the synagogue and teaching the new believers, some like a a Aquila and Priscilla and Timothy and Silas were able to sit down with others and explain the Christian faith with them, read the Bible with them. Some, like Justice, were able to provide material support by saying, look, here's a place where you can meet. God has given each one of us different gifts and abilities that we can use to see the gospel preached, to see more people come to know and to trust Jesus. Jesus. They are gifts and abilities to be used with that one goal in mind to enable more people to come to know and to love and to trust Jesus the way that we do.